arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. The Terraforming of Mars, as conceptualized by Chris McKay of NASA. Humans will finally reach Mars in the year 2035. After a voyage taking half a year, the great day has arrived. The crew of six includes geologists and biologists. They begin by conducting a detailed survey of the Mars environment that will provide information hitherto unobtainable by unmanned space probes. With the landing craft as a base of operations, the astronauts will also start preparations to build a facility for long-term habitation. The temperature on Mars ranges from minus 130 degrees to plus 20 degrees Celsius, depending on season and location. The average is an extremely low minus 55 degrees. There is almost no oxygen. The atmosphere is extremely thin, just one 160th of Earth's. The sun's harmful UV rays beat down on the Martian surface without mercy. Without a protective spacesuit, human activity on the surface would be impossible. Fortunately, the gravity on Mars is only a third of Earth's. That makes wearing these 100 kilogram spacesuits a little easier. A brutal environment, inimical to human life. What would it take to turn this arid red planet into a hospitable, Earth-like place of blue and green? An atmosphere for one thing. Earth's thick atmosphere absorbs the sun's UV rays, protecting life. Another is water. Earth's abundant waters foster diverse living organisms. A thick atmosphere and plentiful waters. That's how it has to start. The terraforming of Mars. Cobb has connected with Ariana Cervantes and arranged a date. But that's later. Let's talk about the Mars of the future. Harry Cobb lives in a time where Mars is entirely habitable. The atmosphere, one 160th of Earth, remains the same. The technology to construct the lush cities with extensive habitats, parks, water areas, and all environmentally controlled within a dome has brought forth a high standard of living. Keep in mind that these domes stretch for kilometers and are as high as a small mountain. The domes are connected in many ways, land-based vehicles, single-sourced vehicles, rover buses, and the transport tubes utilizing high-speed elevated trams over the desert connect the domes. Also, it should be noted, there are industrial plants, self-contained and productive. More wealthier individuals, such as the Turcots, have their own enclosed estates away from the general population. There are even sports stadiums featuring an involved game of baseball called Real Ball. Okay, let's get into it. Episode 2 of The Dust of Mars, the Harry Cobb series by Robert P. Fitton, begins now. Chapter 6. Under the clear, pale green sky, hundreds of tapering sand mounds covered the connector road to IP5. 
Large, slow-moving yellow cleaner trucks hummed and sucked up the material and then shot the sand out a side chute into the cold, rock-strewn desert. I stared at Pat Note sitting across from me on the rover bench. Well, this is your fault. I thought a ride through the desert might improve your disposition. Are you saying I'm moody this morning? I smiled and walked up to the rover bus driver. The cleaner finally cleared the embankment and we pulled around. IP5's translucent white dome and several connected tubes and the smaller dome spread out before the next angled ridge. Good, it's about time. If we went by Tracer, we'd be having lunch now. If Desmond would spring for it, said Patno. Machine's vacuum and rotor was louder as we passed and headed toward the open plant road. I panned the rolling valley toward IP7, dotted with craters of varying sizes. Eight kilometers away, Jason Rapp was murdered yesterday in his rented rover. Samantha Evans baffled me. Rennie would uncover the credit information, and, and Pat Note had an alert memo tagging any future Evans credit usage. I returned to the bench. Pat Note crossed his legs. Don't worry, Harry. I have a feeling things will improve for you as the day wears on. I smiled and stared out the window. The rover bus moved on to a dark paved area, still sprinkled brown with dust and bordering one of the side domes. The smooth garage door moved upward as we approached and drove into the transition surrounds. I picked up my office containment and shuffled to the front of the vehicle. The dim light surrounded us as the door rumbled back in place and air pushed across the pad from side vents. When the pressure stabilized, the driver moved the rover bus through a narrow corridor linking the brighter area inside to the main dome. White hebon bulbs highlighted gray steel bars stacked in prodigious bins a hundred meters up in the grainy white dome. I saw little Ed Stanton, his gray hair bursting from under the rim of his red hard hat. He crossed the concrete with his yellow-suited plant personnel. Green transport trucks with tires the size of my orbitus habitat shifted mammoth's shiny steel beams toward pressurized cranes positioned near the stacks. Well, which one is Orby? I asked Pat No as he joined me up front. Guy in back of Ed Stanton with a green hard hat. Skull-traced haircut. Oh, I see him. Orby had a fat face and wide shoulders. He looks like a foreman. I want to know where the hell Joe Lockheed is. Well, we'll hear what he has to say. The rover bus door opened and I thanked the driver for a safe trip, but cautioned I was inclined to board a tracer for the return trip to Livingston. I stepped down the metal stairs and onto the silcoplast. I understand you're officially hired, Harry. Stanton shook hands with Patno and introduced the men from the plant. We were all given red hard hats and directed across the silcoplast to an exterior elevator parked at the base of a towering gray wall. At the top was a row of long, clear silcoplast. What about Lockheed? I asked as we traversed the plant. Well, he's still missing, said Stanton, but I have some pertinent information. Oh, yes, security playback show Joe left here at 1247. He took the connector road to IP7. Well, how do you know that? asked Patno. We'll show you the disc. 12, 12 p.m. he arrived at IP7. You can't tell me Desmond didn't know this yesterday. Well, you can ask him. He's up top. Well, I will, I said, and we again headed toward the elevator. 
What we found on the playback and the interviews with Bud Kearney, Joe's counterpart at IP7, was interesting. Orby pushed a button and the door opened. We filed inside and Stanton continued. Joe's tea suit was covered with dust. And then he must have stepped out of his rover. Correct, and there's more. We slowly rose above the voluminous stacking area. But he really is missing, I said. Yes, we have a playback from last night showing Joe stuffing the dusty suit into a zap duct. The evidence is gone now, but we do have Bud's report and the rover itself. Tests indicate that Joe was inside the dust storm. Well, we know that, Ed, I said, and we came to a stop near the top steel stacks. I want to know where he went after he zapped that suit. Stanton turned as Orby opened the door. A slew of offices with fleshy he-bonds were visible behind the lobby and reception desk. We strutted past several tall green plants, and Stanton raised his finger. Well, don't be so quick to accuse Joe, Harry. Orby has a very interesting account of yesterday's activities here at the plant. We'll speak in my office. I was escorted with the others to a set of blue doors marked security at the end of the corridor. Stanton flicked the controller, punched in a code, and the doors parted. A semicircular desktop was blanketed with the fiery orange glow from smelting ovens below. The huge vats, heated by brilliant red linear tubes, constantly dipped the silver-blue liquid steel into the long, dark molding trays. I leaned against the silcoplast berm and saw men in green suits with bubble protectors working the upper region while others followed the process on the windows above. The steel bars chugged along a conveyor belt and were gradually cooled behind black vertical slats. I remember Desmond and Jared brought me through this area a few years back. Now I wondered what went wrong down there and how Rapp found out about it. Stanton closed the outer doors and the he-bonds brightened. He motioned to Orby at the other end of the table. Okay, Bill, you can brief them. Everyone placed their zips on the table in unison and I smiled at Patno. Orby stared through the silcoplast at the inner plant, tightened his brow, and squinted as he turned. Yesterday, during the 12 o'clock lunch shift, I heard some commotion down in the plant itself. The manufacturing portion? asked Patno. Yes, sir. I was certain that Desmond had rehearsed Orby's account. I observed from the upper walkway an argument between Mr. Jason Rapp and Joe Lockheed. Well, arguments can be both subjective and at different levels of intensity, I said. It was a violent argument. Mr. Rapp continuously followed Joe Lockheed down the cooling lane. You can't see that lane from up here, but I'd be glad to bring you down there. For all that matters, Joe kept shaking his head and yelling that he had had enough. I had enough of what? asked Patno. Stanton pushed his controller and the word sound playback appeared on the center window screen. Enough of being blackmailed. Well, that's no surprise, I said, and Orby started the amplified playback. You are a lowlife, and every time you come to Mars looking for money, it's the fourth time, and I've had it, I've had it. You're set. I have the ability of the right people, you and the terracot, to be ruined, don't you? What I need? No, I won't do it anymore. I've had enough. Get out. Get out. Or... Or what? Well, that's all we have. Patno rolled his eyes. 
I would like that playback analyzed. You'll have to clear that with Desmond. Well, the hell with Desmond. I'll get a court order, said Pat. No, he banged his fist on the table. The center table window brightened with Desmond's image. There will be no court order, Inspector. It isn't necessary. You're right, Desmond, I said. Since you've been listening to this conversation and the sound, I would assume that you realize that Joe Lockheed's next sentence threatened rap with death. I know nothing of the sort. I think Bill Orby should finish this story. Your story, I said. I would advise you, Harry, that you are on retainer from me. I'm just trying to help you. You mean divert? No mind. My, my, you've become so cynical since your bureau days. Do continue your account bill for Mr. Cobb and the inspector. Orby's face tensed. He cleared his throat. Well, Jim Oakley usually works the weekends. He chose to enter the plant yesterday and proceed up to the lunchroom, but with something he retrieved from his locker. This sure as hell sounds like a setup, said Patno. Think again, Inspector, said Desmond, his image in the corner box. I saw a playback of the lanky, sandy-haired Oakley, a man in his thirties, reach behind the locked door. He stepped forward, looked around, and tucked something in his coat pocket. Well, you don't know that either, I said. Oh, yes, we do, said Desmond as the playback advanced and then froze. A magnified image of Oakley's pocket showed a pinpoint pulse's silver-grooved handle. Well, what do you think now? Like John said, we'll have to verify the disc. I'm serious. How do I know this isn't an attempt just to cover for Joe Lockheed? Perhaps you need more evidence. Please. I turned to Patno. Where is Oakley, John? Missing. An exterior window scanner showed a rover bus bouncing down the connector road from IP5 toward the dust clouds in IP7. You can check the side tag if you wish. Ed already has. This is Rap leaving for IP7. Why? I asked. Stanton walked around the table and faced me. Harry, uh, Joe told Rap he was leaving for a prior appointment at IP7. We have that playback also. So you're saying that Rap left to follow Lockheed? Asked Patno. No, he left five minutes before Joe Lockheed, said Stanton. Joe threatened to go to the Turcots and the authorities about the blackmail. I suppose you have that conversation too, Desmond. We do, answered Desmond. Did Rap specifically say he was going to kill Lockheed? He may have wanted to continue the argument at IP7. Desmond grinned and shook his head. I think he waited in the lurch for Lockheed. Well, you don't know that, I said, and I leaned toward Desmond's image. Do you have any playbacks of what was said on the connector road? We have nothing on the road, said Stanton, but we do have a visual of Jim Oakley following both men onto the connector road. I exhaled and sat down. For a second, I closed my eyes. Then I propped my elbows on the table and set my chin on my knuckles as I thought about Oakley's motives. Why would Oakley give a damn about any of this? And why did he take a pinpoint from his locker? On the far side of the room, Patino called his office on the zip. Was he trying to kill Lockheed or Rap? This has gotten complicated, said Desmond, with a smirk making my blood race faster. I think it is incumbent upon you gentlemen to find out the information. Where is Lockheed, Desmond? Are you hiding him? Oh, don't be absurd. I pointed toward the Silkoplast. 
What happened down there in the plant that allowed Rapp to blackmail Joe Lockheed? That's confidential company information. Now the anger surged in my gut and I stood. Then you get yourself another boy. I'm off of this. Now, now, now. I would ask you to reconsider, Harry. And get suckered into your cover-up? Forget it, I said, looking at Patno, still on the zip. I'm heading back to Livingston. Stay the night. Then I'm going back to Orbitus. You people worry about your shenanigans down here. I'm heading home. I took two steps toward Patno. He raised his finger and turned as he continued on the zip, and Desmond's image disappeared. Come on, John, let's go. Patno tucked his zip into his pocket and nodded. The intensity of his blue eyes told me he had new information. I said nothing, and neither did he. He shook hands with Stanton. He offered to bring us back to the transition surrounds. I quickly squelched that idea, and Patno and I exited the room. Harry, you shouldn't have quit the case. The Turcots are too powerful for their own good. I don't care what Desmond wants. I don't care who killed Rap, and I'm going to have dinner with Ariana and let the chips fall where they may. Patino followed me into the elevator. The doors opened, and he typed something into his zip as we slowly sunk to ground level. Rap was tapping Oakley's wife. Come on, I shouted, knowing we were probably monitored. What a soap opera. It's true. Great. The scenario fell into place like he-bonds, gradually illuminating a darkened room. Oakley was an employee right here at IP5 and had access to plant production. He knew what happened up here and must have told his wife. Rapp somehow pirated that information from the wife. Although speculating, I knew I was right. You still want to get off the case, Harry? Asked Pat Noe as the rover bus rocked along the connector road to Livingston. I clamped my jar and stared across the rolling rock plains. I had said nothing about the case since we left the IP-5 surround. Well, you know, two people had motives and opportunity. Three, I said. I knew you couldn't stop thinking about this. Well, I'm not in the habit of working for nothing, John. We'll add you on the force as a consultant. I turned back and looked him in the eye. What makes you think you could afford my fees? Well, knowing your altruistic nature. Altruism, yes. Working for nothing, no. I looked outside the rover bus again. Samantha Evans rented a rover, now covered with dust, configured to the murder scene dust. And she was playing around with the original owner of the pinpoint, the kill Rap. I closed my eyes. Rap's return to the surface of Mars found its nexus out in the desert, a perfect isolated area for three individuals to track him down. I focused on Patino when I opened my eyes. You know what's bothering me? What's bothering you, Harry? Evans, Lockheed, and Oakley have clear beefs with Rapp, but the Evans problem is cloudy. Evans and Rapp are both from Baltimore on Earth. That tells me that whatever inspired Evans goes way back. I'll see what Rennie finds on their credit. Patinode held the sidebar as we hit a rough spot on the road but he lost his grip and slipped onto the floor. His face reddened and I tried not to laugh as he rose and held his buttocks. Still smiling, I swung my eyes to the ceiling. I'm not laughing, John. Well, you better not. I saw him grin. Listen, my division has found no record of Evan's arrival or departure onto the planet, which is odd. Only the tab at the Dillon and the Rover payment, which means she still might be in Livingston. 
I doubt it. Not if she's the killer. We need to check alternate transportation off-planet. Maybe droid payments up front. Cash. Hotels in Livingston, as well as transportation transactions, require payment by credit since last June. I helped push that law through. It tracks people. Then we'll have to thank you, John. Perhaps Samantha Evans was unaware of the change, but didn't want to miss the opportunity to kill Rap. Livingston's rounded edges were tinted bronze with tiny bursts of reflected sun over the silcoplast as we passed a small crater off-road. I rubbed my mouth and moved my shoulders. Are you going to stay the course on this one? The phony grin I raised my brows. What I'm going to do, John, is relax in the exercise habitat, sit in the sauna, and maybe take a swim. And then meet the woman you left behind ten years ago. Well put. Chapter 7 A memo from Ariana reminded me of our dinner date. I did not plan to purchase a new Suko boots and neckliner, but my anxiety in meeting her shook me more than I cared to admit. I rationalized my apprehension by thinking about the case. As I descended the elevator outside the Dillon, I fought the urge to call Desmond Turcott and officially get back aboard the investigation. My zip sounded above Livingston's luminescent suburban maze. Cobb. Checking up on me, Dad? I was going to do that later. We have Oakley's rover. He packed it in the corner of a north end garage. Dust matches the dust on Evans's rover. And the round trip mileage is 28 kilometers. Pat Node's image finally materialized over the zip window. His suko was off and his neckline of sleeves rolled up as he sat on the edge of his office desk. He had a small bandage strip on his hand, and his hair was scattered. Oh, the cat scratch you, or did Gwen finally throw you out? Patino glanced at his hand. This day has pushed me to the precipice, Harry. First I slipped on the rover bus ride back to Livingston, and then I bruised my backside. I tried not to make light of his troubles. Did I hear you laugh, Harry? Who, me? And Gwen is holding a birthday party for my granddaughter. You know how we celebrate birthdays. I forgot the cake. Then I cut my hand on the rover bubble opening. I ordered the cake and she tells me she made the cake. Fortunately, it was a cheesecake base. I'll keep it at the office. Listen, I'm tired and I'm on my way home, but I want to know if you still... Are investigating the murder, I asked as the elevator reached the tree level on Avenue 17. I don't know. I keep changing my mind. Let me get through this night and I'll tell you. You're not really going to call later, are you, John? Nope. And by the way, Mrs. Oakley, Kara Oakley, confirm the affair with Rap. She's a real high stepper, let me tell you. Whoa, boy. The last few months, I'll make a long story short. She used to take the weekend excursion to the Orbitus gaming halls. The elevator settled in front of Avenue 17. Oakley worked weekends at the plant and she was vulnerable. One side of me is glad that Rap was murdered. Listen, I'm waiting for Rennie to get back to me about Evans's credit, and Max and Jody are headed to Baltimore for more background on Evans. I'm going to keep going after those records, too. Okay, good luck. Remember, if Ariana wasn't serious, she wouldn't have suggested dinner. Agreed. I walked onto the granite sidewalk. 
Good night, John. Enjoy the party. I will. Don't stay out too late. Thanks, Dad. I put away the zip and noticed I had a half hour to cross the dome by tram and meet Ariana at the Excelsior. I strolled along the sidewalk under the white street domes and spreading tree branches. Behind me, a short, stocky Asian man with slick black hair exited through the Dillon's brass doors and appeared on the sidewalk. Samantha Evans baffled me as I increased my pace toward the tram station. Everything Pat Note said about Evans not knowing about the new hotel and the transport regulations made sense. But if she were here on Mars to murder Rap, why would she chance leaving her name on the hotel register? What type of obsession or hatred did she harbor toward this man? Fifty meters behind me, the heavy Asian man, whom I dubbed Chub Chu Chub, continued up the sidewalk. The glow from an approaching tram across the overhead on the avenue above. I hurried down the sidewalk and caught the escalator to my right. I tapped my fingers on the side rail and knew I would have to stay on the case. Once I boarded the tram, I would call Sadie. Only a few people, mostly students from the university, lingered on the platform as the sleek white tram slowed. I placed my palm on the scanner and angled toward the open doors. I realized Evans had used a card and not physical scans. Why not a genetic or even a palm or retinal scan? I took a seat up front near a window screen and no longer saw a chub on the avenue sidewalk. I plugged in my zip before the tram left the station. Orb this time was only two hours behind Livingston. Sadie turned in her office chair as she activated the window. Hello, Harry. Well, you don't have to be working late. A few things I had to catch up on. She opened her green eyes wide. Aren't we dressed to the hilt? Well, I have a dinner meeting. Must be quite a meeting, she said, chuckling as if she knew I was meeting Ariana, but I had only told Pat Note. I haven't been able to locate Rennie. And he did say he would be about... He's in the zone if his zip is off. I'll try him later. I was about to memo you a copy of what I had acquired about Samantha Evans. She was 27 when she disappeared six years ago in Platinum City. October 6, 2139. No trace of her body. Max memoed me that her brother Dan died two years ago in Baltimore. And don't tell me it was by pinpoint. No, no. He had a degenerative disease. Natural. Oh, you sure? I asked as the tram started. Yes. What's odd is the fact there was no record of disbursement of her account balances. Was there any reason why she would want to disappear? I asked. Caldwell was a rich man and Evans was supposedly his lover. Sadie, his life is worth looking into if we can ever pull that gutter rat Rennie out of the zone. Sadie winced and then shook her head. I've talked to several establishments within the zone today and some individuals whom I really would not consider respectable. The tram started above the Livingston Avenues. No, don't you call the zone. I'll find Rennie. Please go home. I will, when I'm done. And Harry? Yes? I asked, looking out from the tram. Enjoy your evening with Ariana. I smiled. She waved and ended the transmission. Patino. I gazed at the gray window, unplugged my zip, and moved to a side seat. Sadie was indispensable to my work, and I was forever grateful in that she left the bureau with me when I retired. I gazed across the darkened dome. 
The Excelsior glowed gold within the other silhouetted buildings as the tram moved effortlessly along the smooth white concave bed. I had a plethora of contradicting feelings, primary of which was getting involved with Ariana. Just because I happened to see her on Orbitus and was dumb enough to cross the gambling floor didn't mean that seeing her tonight was a good idea. The Excelsior's light was stronger now, enough to cast shadows in the surrounding tree parks. Like a schoolboy out on his first important date, my heart pushed against my chest and neckliner. Such predilections only lasted a few minutes, brought to halt with the tram along the hotel's red canopy platforms. Busy busboys in green sucos with narrow collars, non-existent tails and thin lapels, loaded new arrival containments onto the controller release carts with the wide white wheels. The forward windows flashed the Excelsior's name, address, and vacancy status, and after three short beeps, the tram operator shouted out the hotel's name. I thought of Burroughs, a tram operator between domes, dropped by a pinpoint pulsar owned by Caldwell. The coincidences had piled up too quickly. I didn't like the fact that Evans was Caldwell's lover and then disappeared five days before his death. I moved toward the side doors and questioned whether Caldwell really died from heart failure. I wanted to know about his credit disbursement after his death. The doors opened quickly and I walked onto a gritty, colorful mosaic surface. I opted to parallel the mover toward a set of shiny brass doors a few dozen meters ahead. As the tram pulled from the station, I saw Chubb again, this time in the third car back. I stared into his tiny dark eyes and then ran along the platform. He turned as the tram moved back into the dome. John, I shouted into my zip, but I got his memo box. John, I have a little chubby Asian guy trailing me. Pat Note's voice overrode the box. Harry. John, I'm being trailed. You need to have somebody aboard the tram in Livingston. Are you sure? Yes, damn it. Short and chubby Asian guy. I'll send somebody up to the Livingston platform from Avenue 17. Thank you. Did you scan him? No, I was running and the tram was leaving. Okay, Harry, relax. Well, I can't relax. Something else is going on here and I don't like it. I shut off the zip with clamped teeth and backtracked along the tram platform. It was imperative that I find Rennie in the zone and get him back to Mars. Woman in wide green velvet dresses bare at the shoulders greeted me at the Excelsior's silver frame doors. I strode inside under a complex arrangement of glass crystals cascading over the upper lobby. The walking stairs, marble with a polished ebony side rail, swept upward to the mezzanine and the Excelsior rooms. Most people gravitated to the escalator, but I opted to release my pent-up energy. The huge Roman numeral clock face, framed in gold and embedded with a Venus beige facade, commenced a long, deep, resonating Westminster chime at the hour. I hoped my tardiness would not weigh against me. My old supervisor at the Bureau, John O'Neill, maintained that people waiting always gave him the advantage. I didn't think this was the case tonight. I reached the stairway top, slightly winded. Patno would have pointed out my age and stamina deficiencies. I was rattled by Chubb as I checked the lobby and walked along the wood-paneled conference rooms toward the Excelsior's restaurant. Checking my neckline of position, I moved through the crowd and up to the front desk. The restaurant conversation mixed with a gentle piano melody. I saw a man in an apricot suko 
waltzes fingers across an ivory keyboard below a pearly blue fountain. Sir, said a bushy-haired man in a black suko. Harry Cobb, I have a reservation with... Yes, Mr. Cobb. Miss Cervantes has arrived and has requested an alcove up front. He snapped his fingers. Boris, please bring Mr. Cobb to Miss Cervantes' alcove. Well, thank you, I said, trying not to appear as uneasy as I felt. Boris, his suko of velvet yellow, motioned me to the main body of the restaurant. The chandeliers in this area were dimmed and not as prodigious as the lobby fixtures. He directed me to the wide, carpeted stairs to my right. I was distracted when I first saw Ariana's bare shoulders. She wore a pale blue dress, white gloves that extended up to the elbows, and she had taken time to have someone weave her dark hair, exposing her smooth white neck to a few wispy strands. She had chosen a wide window of the Barsoom Dome, but I was not quite sure whether the image was direct or played back. I posted a tip with my zip in Boris's scanner. Being in a generous mood, I hit the scanner twice and he thanked me profusely. I climbed the alcove steps and had forgotten both Ariana's and the dome's natural beauty. As I gazed over the long water sheets tumbling over the rocky gondola falls, the sunlight danced from the window and cast a warm glow over the table linens. She walks in beauty. Ariana turned abruptly as if I had startled her. Her white teeth emerged under a subtle red lip shade and her dark eyes brightened. Like the night. I bowed graciously. Miss Cervantes. Mr. Cobb? She said, gently lifting her hand upward. I touched the fabric to my lips and sensed a slew of scents available only to those with wealth. But wealth wasn't what attracted me to her. Her beauty and charm were undeniable. You are more stunning than I remember. She smiled gradually, and I see you've brought us via the window back to paradise. Maybe paradise is closer than you think. I walked around the table, glancing at the chateau on the cliffs, and took my seat. Ariana set her elbows on the table and looked deeply into my eyes. It was enough to dazzle me and muzzle all the rehearsed lines for the evening. Ten years. Well, it doesn't seem like ten years. No, in some ways, it's like I left Barsoom yesterday or last week, and conversely, ten years seems like an eternity. I was so alone. She looked into my eyes with an unusual warmth and sincerity. I was thirty-one years old, an aspiring socialite, occasionally dabbling in my father's company. I wanted my lifestyle, and I left you alone in the dome. I'm sorry. It was my fault. I tilted my head back and smiled. Then I held her a smooth-gloved hand. I've spent the last 24 hours trying to unravel my feelings, and you lay it on the table in 10 seconds. The waiter arrived in a white tuxedo and dark tie. He displayed the wine list on the window corner. Ariana smiled when I ordered a bottle of Oricon Vineyard. Then she excused herself and carried her matching blue purse into the restroom. I leaned back in the recliner and watched on the window as the water sheets fell into the Montero Gorge. Her perfume was still strong on the edge of my fingers. I concentrated on her moist eyes and hair. The wrap case, Desmond Turcotte, or potential fees or suspects were irrelevant now. A woman opened the ladies' room door in a flash. I saw Ariana drop liquid from a thin tube into each eye. 
Her right glove was removed. The door closed and a chill crossed my back when I thought she might use mine alternators, applied to the eyes. The waiter placed the wine on the table as the ladies' room door slid open again. I asked him to open the bottle and pour it. With an arched back emanating elegance, Ariana moved across the main restaurant, and both gloves were snugly back in place. The waiter poured the wine swiftly into the long-necked glasses. I stood as she reached the stairs and checked her gait and manner. She blinked her eyes once and ascended the stairs and took my hand. I thanked the waiter and retrieved her glass. Thank you. I lifted my own glass as we remained standing. Gently I clinked her glass. To the days ahead. To our days. I sipped the full-bodied oricon and set the, and set the glass on the table. Then I seated her, but my cynicism kept me wondering about what she had dipped into her eyes. I heard the piano melody from the main room as the incandescent he-bonds lowered to the ember thread tubes, and I smiled. Remember we sang the old show tunes in the chateau? Well, that was fun. I'm glad you decided to come to Mars, Ariana. Business is sometimes serendipitous. And have you set your business agenda? Three clients here in Livingston and a half a dozen in Whittemore. I raised my brows. Such are the responsibilities of the chairman of Amalgamated Sureties. You seem to have moved into that role very well. Sink or swim, your father built an empire. Her face went flat and a tiny crevice developed on her smooth brow. My father ran this company solidly, but believe me, there were a thousand things buried when I took over. My trip here involves tying up some of those loose ends. I don't like loose ends, Harry. I think that comes with change, any change. You have to be ready to look under the rug. We're all guilty of doing the same thing. I'm sure when I left the Bureau, the same could have been said of me. She squeezed my hand. You would leave your desk clean, even the cubby holes. Now what makes you say that? I asked, and I finished the wine. Don't think Father didn't look into your background after Barsoom. Oh, did I pass the scrutiny? Of course. I didn't see the reports until after he died. You are one persistent man, Harry Cobb, but then again, I know that. And thorough. Or were. But now you're retired, so why are you here? Oh, it's a complicated case involving the Turcots. Her eyes closed briefly. I know Desmond Turcott from social gatherings in Platinum City. He is a real bore. Did he hire you? The waiter climbed the mezzanine stairs. He did, but I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. Why would he hire you? That's not important. I looked up at the waiter. May I show you the menu, sir? Yes, please do. The extensive listening appeared on the window. I was in the mood for real beef, but I doubted whether I wanted to pay for imported cuts. How much will a well-done steak set me back? The waiter shined a thin beam pointer at the listing, startling Ariana. I am sorry, Miss Cervantes. I was quite all right, quite all right. A steak will cost you a desiderate. I ordered the accompanying rice and vegetables grown fresh on Mars. Ariana wanted an organic mixture. We had just finished ordering and requested Jaffron steamers when Chubb appeared near the restaurant entrance. Ariana turned. What is it, Harry? Well, this has gone far enough. I stood quickly and threw my napkin on the table and grabbed my zip. Excuse me, Ariana. Chubb's face tightened and he darted toward the escalators. I scanned the front with my zip, but I was sure I missed getting his image. 
It took me a full minute to descend the mezzanine stairs and cross the restaurant. At the top of the escalator, I didn't see him. Damn. I played back the zip, but only saw a magnified, blurred image of his dark hair and light blue suko. My first move was to request hotel security speak to me at the table, and then I called Patno. By this time, he was away from his zip, and I memoed the murky image and reported Chubb to the Excelsior security. Then I returned with great alacrity and apologized to Ariana for a matter of business. Her wine glass remained at the halfway level and stayed that way through our dinner conversation, which mostly centered around her. Her many athletic talents included tennis, mountain climbing, swimming, and an intra-solar system reputation for athletic prowess. I remembered in the Barsoom Dome how easily she scaled some of the narrow mountain trails and waited for me to plod along behind. She explained about her numerous allergies. She was savvy enough to know I had watched her briefly as she applied the liquid to her eyes in the ladies' room. I remained skeptical. I chewed the last smooth beef morsel as three men in red fatigues and identity badges bounded up the mezzanine stairs. I excused myself again and met them at the top. With only Chubb's fuzzy picture on the zip, I now gave them his physical description. The young man in charge was very cordial, but I sensed he knew what I knew. Chubb had long since left the hotel and had disappeared within Livingston's two million residents. I found Ariana staring into the interior of the Barsoom Chateau. She looked up slowly as I returned to the table. I want to go back to the Barsoom, Harry. I'm reticent about trying to recreate perfection. Well, I've often thought of how abruptly I left that perfection. I think I was afraid. What were you afraid of? I asked and leaned forward. She raised her dark, straight brows. Commitment. Commitment. Well, commitment isn't a four-letter word. Oh, it can be if you've got other unresolved things. I nodded and thought back to Chubb following me along the sidewalk. My guess is he worked for Desmond, and while I didn't peg Desmond as Jason Rapp's murderer, I didn't discount his involvement, specifically with Joe Lockheed. I had a number of things to accomplish. She smiled graciously and held my hand again. Let's plan to go back. I gradually exhaled. Well, let me think about it. Afraid of commitment? No, I'm afraid of ruining perfection. Chapter 8 At 2.30 in the morning, I left Ariana outside her room at the Excelsior and meandered into the external corridor. I was taken aback by her reluctance to allow me in her room. At first, I thought it was a feminine ploy holding me back to keep me interested or perhaps prompt me back to the Barsoom Dome. Her dark hair and eyes were vivid in my thoughts as I entered the elevator, high above the Livingston Dome. We had spent the last four hours on three different dance floors, and our banter on and off the dance floor was exhilarating. All the old feelings were back. I entered the elevator and turned on my zip as I started down the Excelsior Shell to the avenue. A message from Sadie and another from Patno, both from hours ago, flashed red on my zip. I first pushed Patno's message. He was seated on the sofa watching a real ball game on a small window as young children ran around the room, producing a constant chatter. Harry, I know you'll either pick this up early tomorrow morning or maybe even tomorrow morning, depending on where you are and where you end up. Oh, you're so smart, John. 
one of his grandkids jumped up on his lap. He pointed out how a real ball diamond is 11 feet longer than a Major League Baseball diamond back on Earth. But the child didn't understand. I guess I better not tell Jenny about the fences being back 50 feet and the ball not having as much oomph. Harry, Samantha Evans Rover produced some significant items. A tiny blue filtered eye lens and blonde hair within the tea suit. See, I was right. See, you were right. I chuckled as the elevator moved downward. The lens contains genetic material. However, that means nothing since the law doesn't require normal citizens, only criminals, to file genetic scans. We haven't found anything at this time, 10 p.m., but the hair is not living. Either someone went in there and said she was Samantha Evans, but used a facial squeeze. Maybe Evans needed to wear a blonde hair simulation. I don't know. What we want to do is check the genetic material with any possible Evans material on file. If you are still functioning, Harry, meet me in Evans's rover garage at 9. Oh, there's nothing I can do about your evasive Mr. Chubb, as you call him, without a clear image. But I have alerted Dome Security to the incident at the Excelsior. They have your zip image. Very interesting, Johnny. I should have gone with my original feelings. I leaned against the elevator wall and memoed him back. But I asked about an Evans connection to the Turcots, or perhaps Jason Rapp. The elevator reached the ground level. I stepped onto the sidewalk and arched my back as I looked up at the Excelsior's golden sheen facade. Maybe I should have pressed Ariana about staying the night. I suppose I'd have time with her again in the Barsoom Dome, but a natural hesitancy loomed as I worried about her eventual return to her complicated life. Once on the sidewalk, I checked for Mr. Chubb around the hotel lobby and surrounding pavilions. I pushed Sadie's memo and headed directly for the tram back to the Dillon. Harry, I located Rennie at the Lizard's Tongue in Building 6217 of the zone. He said to call any time, but I would caution you, even though you've worked the zone, some of these people are, well, you know how they are. I do, I said as I reached the tram escalator. Again, I searched for Chubb and was close to waking Desmond. Maybe an early morning call would stop his henchmen from following me. I settled on sending a scathing memo informing him I did not appreciate someone following me. I stepped onto the platform and leaned against a side pole while I waited for the tram. I entertained the theory that Desmond used three people to get rap. Oakley and Lockheed could be pressured as employees, but the Evans connection baffled me. Evans, if she were alive, had no reason to alter her appearance unless the reason she disappeared was related to some deformity or degenerative disease. The lens was unnecessary in that scenario. Any Turcotte lackey could do that. Someone assumed and copied Evans' identity, yet no one had found a disposed facial squeeze. When I heard the tram approached, I wandered onto the smooth white platform's edge. Again, I stared at the tram crew within the illuminated forward cabin. I thought of Burroughs, the tram operator, killed by Evans's lover's pinpoint. The doors parted, and I entered the empty car. I trotted to the rear window and plugged in my zip, and crossed the Lizard's Tongue address into my window. The tram pulled from the Excelsior station, and I checked the charging level on my pulser, and then slipped it back under my suko. I didn't trust Chubb or whoever hired him. 
Desmond was capable of doing anything to preserve the Turcotte industrial presence. I set the zip-scan settings for the lizard's tongue and made the connection. As the window gyrated with signal clutter, I looked for Chubb along the avenues and through the other tram cars. On the zip window, blue track lights appeared on a black ceiling and the outlines of a long bar took shape. A seedy individual with brilliant white hair smiled oddly into the scanner. His voice was modulated. My name is Harry Cobb. I'm trying to track down Rennie Coburn. One droid. Is he there or isn't he? And why should I have to pay you any droids? Droids are magic potion. Do you wish magic, Harry Cobb, or do you wish the void? I reluctantly pushed an acceptance of his terms through my zip. Now, where the hell is he? Let me locate him. The man's dark-lined eyes opened wide, and he smiled again. Nice doing business with you. I wondered if I would need to withdraw my acceptance, but figured this goof would somehow bring Rennie to the window. I studied the redefined gender groups, men and women, dancing under the lights. Waitresses in electric orange short skirts crossed with trays of gluing blue glasses and mugs up to the luminescent green bar. The white-haired guy returned and picked up the window scanner. The image dipped and jiggled in front of me. Oh, come on, just pause the scanner. I turned from the window and leaned my head on the recliner pillow. The tram continued back toward the Dillon, but even though I tried, I was now charged up about the lens and the rover and the fact that someone had trailed me all evening. I only saw an area between Rennie's jar and waist at the table edge when the bar scanner was set on a table within the lounge. Harry? Rennie, I can't see your head. I consider yourself lucky. He reached out, his hand appearing elongated before the scanner and moved it upward. His sandy hair and bright blue eyes and the two women with magenta hair were clear. Having a good time? That's right. I played cards with the guy once, five years ago at the Deco Pavilion. He's a pretty good cheater. I leaned forward and folded my hands. What else? Like the woman. Can't fault for that. Both ladies smiled. I would consider him reckless. I nodded. Ever hear of Samantha Evans? Only from Sadie. I got the calls about her credit. I'll have something for you. Is she a suspect? I don't know. She may have been killed, I said. But I have no proof of that other than Patno found a lens in the rover she supposedly rented and hairs from a wig. Somebody may have been using her identity. Any sign of a facial alteration? Nothing. I find it odd, mate, that the murder weapon, the pinpoint, was owned by her now deceased lover. And the other guy in the memo, Burroughs. Yeah, that's one of the reasons for my still being awake. One of your reasons? He asked and raised his brows up and down. You masquerade as the nice Uncle Harry. I know you. Mountain lion, ready for the kill. What's your take on this, Harry, and I'll run with it? Two main concerns. Desmond, as I said in my memo, and what they're covering up over at IP5 on Mars. 
I need to know what the hell it is and what Desmond is doing to cover it up, maybe even murder, if there's any connection between the Turcotts and Evans, or Lockheed and Oakley. And Evans himself, said Rennie. Exactly. It could take Patton no months to get through. Fire me if it takes more than 72 hours. I pointed at the window. I'll hold you to that, Rennie. The other thing is, I've got some Asian man tailing me. Send me an image, said Rennie. Not available. Watch yourself, Harry. Keep me updated. You watch yourself. Ah, the night is young, mate. One of the women shut off the scanner and I shook my head. The tram moved over the concave track for another ten minutes and slowed at the Dillon. I unplugged my zip and grabbed the standing rail as I gazed up at the smaller half-lit Dillon. My eyes moved across the lobby platform. The doors opened and I walked briskly outside. I touched base with hotel security about Chubb and then proceeded down the escalator. I looked toward the dimmed Hebon lobby and was about to head to my room when the zip indicated another memo was received. I sat on a front sofa and played back the message. Patno was on an audio scan. Harry, I assume you're preoccupied. Look, Oakley was approached by two security men in Burlingame Park. He opened fire with his pinpoint. The men are hurt and are in field units, and Oakley is missing. We have a full alert out there. Call me when you get this. I raced to the window screens along the wall. While on the tram, I had leaned toward Evans' complicity in the rap murder, but now I questioned the presence of Lockheed and Oakley. I attached my zip and tagged Desmond as either the formulator of the crime or an active participant. Pat note Zipski and materialized in transit, and the audio was garbled at first. I think I'm hearing you, Mr. Then he positioned the zip. He wore a neckliner and a real ball cap. Just goes to prove you can strike out in other things other than real ball, John. What the hell happened with Oakley? I don't know. I don't know why he was in the park. But the son of a bitch opened fire on two of my men. I think they're going to make it, but I'm not sure. Hardly the actions of an innocent man. Maybe a cornered man, I said, wishing that I had his Jaffron cup in my own hand. Where is he now? He must be in the dome somewhere. That's a good point, John. I think he was scared. He must know the scuttlebutt around the dome. Patno picked up the huge red and blue mug and sipped the jaffron. He smacked his lips. Well, I have to go with facts. I can't be off on wild theories. And the damn fact is Oakley stalked Rap with a pinpoint and traveled down the connector road to IP-7. He had the motive. And Rap had the affair with his wife. I agree, I said, and I yawned. <sighs> I need a cup of that brew. Listen, he probably wanted to kill Rap, and I can't say that I blame him, but that doesn't mean he did kill Rap. With the storm... He had a pinpoint. Was it Caldwell's pinpoint? I asked loud enough for the desk clerk to turn. Well? We don't know where he got the pinpoint, so you can't say categorically, Harry, that he didn't kill Rap. I sat back in the recliner and folded my arms. Then I unbuttoned my suko and pointed at Patno. John, we don't know whether he didn't do it either. Evans and Lockheed... I have to present the facts. Well, he acted guilty at firing at you guys. Where the hell is Lockheed? 
Pat Note held the Jaffron mug but didn't drink. You know, you're a real pain in the ass, Harry. I know that. I'll lock up Oakley if I find him, and I will charge him. You have to do what you have to do. I'm pursuing the Evans angle with my people. He set the cup on the side holder when his zip sounded. I'm going to get some sleep. Well, I'll second that. I watched as Pat Note's face tighten, but I couldn't understand the audio. Okay, Johnny, nighty-night. Wait, Harry, wait. He nodded and shut off the memo. You sleep on this little tidbit. The Evans T-suit. Ripped at the forearm. That's how I hurt my hand on that jagged piece of metal on that stupid rover. I was on my feet but sat down. You rip a T-suit in those temperatures and you'll have a cold burn to write home about. Where's Evans and what does she have to do with this? I rubbed my eyes. At this point, John, I don't care. Let her flee the planet, the whole solar system. I don't care. Let Oakley take over the dome. I'm going to sleep. No mind. Oh, funny man. Good night. I tore the zip from the window and marched across the lobby. The elevator was at lobby level. Longing for sleep, I stepped inside and started up along the building in the darkness. Chapter 9 I fell face down on the bed and didn't bother to change into a nightsuit. The blood rushed to my head, and I felt as if I were sinking into the bed's air cushion. I verbally commanded the hebons to dim slowly. Darkness surrounded me, and I reminded myself I had tripled the security checks on the room. Chubb's sneaky countenance infiltrated my drifting thoughts, and nebulous color blasts swarmed around inside my eyes. A zip memo sounded as I went out. Heave on's on, I said without thinking. The ensuing brightness in my aching eyes caused me to second-guess the impulsive decision. Heave on's off. I pushed a flashing red bulb when the audio cracked. Rennie's Australian accent penetrated the darkness. Harry, old buddy, I can't tell you the reports we got about Caldwell's pulsar are verified. Caldwell was a very successful investment crediteer and a confirmed bachelor in Platinum City for 35 years. Record from a field unit in the con section of Platinum City stated that he died of a heart attack, but I didn't find an addendum, originally deleted from the official record. A dissenting doctor wanted to look into the possibility of a high-frequency disruption because of minute tissue variations. Somebody squelched it, Harry. Good luck in finding those reports, mate. Then he was murdered, and Evans was gone. I will, however, give it a shot. Gem number two, and you're not going to like this one. The memo paused. I just want to go to sleep, I said into the darkness. Your friend, Ariana. I opened my eyes, but didn't order the hebons on. She and Caldwell, they were, uh, close. Physically close, Harry. Oh, come on. Sweat collected on my forehead, and I manually turned on the hebon. I'm headed to Platinum City right now to snoop. Give me a memo if you're off the case, or you don't want me to go any further. I didn't know if the tears in my eyes were from jealousy, or because Ariana had just catapulted into my suspect grouping. Perhaps it was a late hour in my state of exhaustion. I tried to convince myself that Rennie's memo was different from what I had just heard. I played it back one more time while I was in bed, and another time when I went to the liquor cabinet and poured myself a respectable glass of scotch. 
She was once his lover, and so was Evans. Evans disappeared, and Caldwell died. I lifted the scotch to my tongue and set the glass on the table. Maybe I was reading too much into this. My gut feeling, always the best barometer, told me Evans was dead, and Ariana had snatched her credit. No, she's independently wealthy. Why would she need Evans's credit? I knew where this was leading as I plugged in my zip to the hotel window and requested a bureau background check on Ariana. Whether I denied it or not, my next step would be a check of Orbitus records for either Ariana or Evans' shuttle payments. To kill Rap, Ariana would have needed to arrive on Mars a day earlier than she had claimed. My attention was drawn to an early picture of Ariana taken in 2120. At 19, her face was thin and her dark hair straighter, but her eyes still possessed an immeasurable beauty I found difficult to resist. Her resume was perfect, an outstanding grade performance supplementing her remarkable social standing in all the Earth boarding schools and at Aronson College in Enfield, Massachusetts. Before assuming the position of controlling officer at Amalgamated Surdies, were mostly social and charitable. Her father died from heart failure, and I immediately linked his death to Caldwell, but I smiled for thinking such things. I wondered, as I stared at dozens of social-posted photographs, how I could think she was masquerading as Evans and capable of murder. She was shorter, but could have used a disguise. But why would she kill Rap? That's the more relevant question. I brought the Orbitus records onto my window. She left the hotel yesterday via a midday shuttle and arrived at the Excelsior around 5. Unless she bolted away from the murder scene and back to Orbitus, my theory was meaningless. I scanned every shuttle departure and arrival on Orbitus and saw neither Ariana nor Evans's name. Then I buried my head on my crossed forearms next to the scotch glass and descended into sleep. A whooshing sound awakened me within the transparency's gray light. For a short time, I didn't know where I was or why the noise increased in intensity. Before I oriented myself, I was cognizant of an inverted pulsar somewhere inside the room. I tripped over the recliner and scrambled to my feet as I ordered on the he-bonds. The lights blazed as I scanned, but an inverted pulsar diverts every other sound, and I quickly realized as I covered my ears from the howling barrage, I was not going to find this pulsar. I grabbed my zip and raced toward the door. Using the master code, I destabilized all three locks, but the door did not slide open. The noise battered my eardrums as I clawed at the door edges and prayed I could open the door before the inversion. Someone had added more codes. I removed my own pulsar and fired a steady beam at the door, not even denting the surface as the pain tightened in my ears. I scrambled across the room and fell a number of times during the increasing crescendo. I held my ears as I approached the panel covering the clear silcoplast. The panel moved effortlessly across the track, revealing a smattering of dome lights far below. I fired a beam in the circle and kicked the transparency away. The cooler night air pushed into the room and I crawled onto a protruding support beam 60 floors above Avenue 17. I slowly turned to gain the most minimal grip, waiting for the pulsar to invert. Air currents moved swiftly at this height, and my stomach was overcome with an anxious feeling reserved for such life-and-death situations. 
The gushing pulsar waves pushed through the silcoplast hole as I precariously shuffled down the ledge. Several times I fought to keep my balance on the thin silcoplast protrusion. I was less than ten meters down the berm when the sound ceased. That meant five seconds to the inversion. I counted down the seconds and clawed my fingers around the building joint as I scurried away. I braced for the massive explosion. An instant burst of orange heat-filled smoke pushed out of the room's silcoplast like a tail of a 20th century rocket nozzle. I held on with my fingers and my foot swung into the air. I quickly repositioned myself on the solid berm. The explosion was over as quickly as it had burst into the night. I had instantly surmised that I was saved only by the rigid room construction designed mostly against a spreading fire, which produced a safe room shell around a vulnerable silcoplast span. Alarms sounded inside the hotel. I closed my eyes, not even knowing I was out of danger until I actually got back inside the Dillon. The upper intense he-bonds popped on. I closed my eyes when I saw the building facade all the way down to the avenue. I slowly dragged my foot back and kicked the next room's silcoplast. The resulting thud was not loud enough to draw attention. With my left hand, I looped my arm down and rapped on the surface. Bright light appeared on the rooms beyond my own destroyed room. I placed my left hand on the upper frame and felt my raised zip board until I found the lower security frequency. I pushed the button, now fully aware of the deadly drop behind me. Chapter 10 A hovering tracer nudged next to my position on the Dillon's 60th floor. Two security men yanked me away from the ridge and into the warmer, brighter tracer. They moved me to a side transport bed and the tracer sped, against my wishes, to a field unit. Fatigue and anxiety forced me into a light sleep along the way. When I opened my eyes, I was connected to life scanners and nutrient pushes in my arm. Because I had come so close to dying, I reluctantly put up with their procedures. I heard Pat Note's voice in the hall and he quickly rounded the corner. Oh, you'll go to any length to get attention, Harry. What time is it? 1.30. Great. I hate heights, John. I know, I know. Who tried to kill me? I asked, and I stared at the perforated white ceiling tiles. Someone who does not want you to dig up Rap's murder. Thanks. I was able to deduce that. I pinched the top of my nose. You ever been trapped 60 floors up, standing on a wall outside of a building? Can't say that I have, Harry. What are you complaining about? You finally got some sleep. I grinned but kept my eyes closed. My zip is in the drawer. There's a memo from Rennie. Patno waddled to the center cabinet. By the way, I called Sadie. She says she's glad you survived. She's afraid she wasn't going to get droid credited this week. I smiled again. I'm glad to hear my threatened demise has such dire consequences. Patno slid open the drawer and removed the zip. He sat in the side recliner and listened with me to Rennie's accented voice bring Ariana into the investigation. When the transmission ended, he was silent for a few moments. I don't draw any erroneous conclusions. I finally propped myself up on the pillows. I don't like coincidences. Coincidences tap into my cynical nature. So, she was Caldwell's lover. I'm connecting the dots with Burroughs' death and the pinpoints tied to Caldwell and his other lover, Samantha Evans, who supposedly rented that rover. I've checked with the shuttle flights between Orbitus and Mars. 
unless she had a private craft and rented the rover with a disguise, while the woman on the playback is five foot seven. Ariana is five foot two, said Patno. The face would have to be altered. And that woman has blonde hair. What about the lens? We'll do a genetic scan. No, you won't, because the lens is missing. Come on, I'm telling you, the guy that was following me last night is responsible for the pulsar inversion. Now he probably grabbed the lens. You're upset, Harry. Well, you're damn right I'm upset. I know when someone is tracking me down. You have to find this guy. I can't believe that Ariana is involved in this at all. Wait, there's one way to test your theory. Ariana's arm would be severely injured. Remember in the tear in the tea suit? I shook my head. Not if the tear occurred back in the garage, John. You're assuming it happened out in the desert. I thought back to last night and how she had removed her right glove in the ladies' room. She wore gloves to dinner last night, John. Then we're simply going to have to question her and check all private flights to the planet. Is she capable of such daring and timing? To track down rap like that and then return to Orbitus? Hell, I don't know. She had an opportunity to kill Rap when they were both on Orbitus the night before. Orbitus is a crowded place, said Patno. He set my zip back in the drawer, and then he looked over his shoulder. Where is she now? I pushed my lips together. Let me handle this. Well, that wouldn't be in the regs. Who the hell cares about the regs? I closed my eyes for a second. She's on a business trip to the Whittemore Dome. I'll take the tram over there and talk to her. But I have to ask the pertinent question. Why would she kill Rap? Pat Note stroked his chin and shook his head. I need some Jaffron. I slid my feet over the bed and stood. I pulled back some of the connecting green fabric on the field containment suit. I'm getting the hell out of here and over to Whittemore. Oh, there are monitor lines attached to that suit. Good. Maybe they'll think I'm dead. Pat Note moved closer. Harry, don't forget our friend Oakley in the shootout last night. And Lockheed is still missing. You have a vested interest here. You know what happens to judgment in cases like this? I stared into his blue eyes. Well, I appreciate your concern, John, but I have to find the truth, no matter where it leads. Cobb has three suspects. Joe Lockheed, the plant manager, a man named Oakley, and Samantha Evans. Then he finds out that Rap and Oakley's wife were involved. He's being tailed by an Asian to whom he gives the name Chubb. Cobb's most trusted man, Rennie Coburn, is incognito within the transaction zone, a Wild West type of area between Jupiter and Mars. She walks in beauty, says Cobb, in a reference to Lord Byron and to Cobb's time in the dome with Ariana, a vast park area where he stayed with Ariana ten years ago. Ariana's warmth and sincerity touches Cobb. She had left early from the Barsoom Dome, and Cobb never got an explanation. When the nice festivities come to an end, Ariana does not let Cobb in her room. Patnote has evidence against the deceased Samantha Evans. Later, Cobb connects with Rennie. Rennie finds a romantic connection with Ariana and the owner of the pinpoint, Codwell, and Evans also is linked to Codwell, and she is dead. Was Ariana involved in the murder? Cobb tries to maneuver around his feelings. And then Cobb is targeted for assassination and almost dies 60 stories above the Livingston Dome. And he is saved by John Patino inside a tracer 60 stories up in the Livingston Dome. Cobb continues his investigation next time in Episode 3.
I wonder if a small biplane can fly in the atmosphere of Mars. We'll find out. I'm boarding the plane now. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.